welcome back to the Eclipse Nation podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Merchant, and I am joined today by David Bernal, a contributing writer at Spin and Fansided. David, what's up? Sabrina, thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, I did not expect to be talking about the second round after this many games, but here we are. Game seven. Two best words in the English language, right? Two best words in the English language, but also at this point, the most terrifying words for any Clippers fan at the moment. I mean, how the heck did we get here? So I know that I said on the podcast a couple weeks back that I took Clippers in five. I think that was a fairly popular opinion. And I was, I was like, what, four minutes away from being right about that. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure how you thought about the series going into it, but I think it's safe to say that the last two games have just been completely a surprise for anyone really outside of a a two mile little radius in Denver, Colorado. (laughs) No. And I I thought that the Clippers, I did not think that they were going to get the gentleman sweep. uh, If only because I thought that the scoring prowess of Jamal Murray uh, combined with the passing of Jokic was going to be a little bit more difficult to handle, excuse me, but I did not foresee this going seven games. Um, And all the credit to the Denver Nuggets. I mean, their resiliency and pushing this game and pushing this series, excuse me, back from a 3-1 deficit, they have to be lauded for that. But at the same time, the Clippers have really struggled to make some key adjustments uh, that I thought would have put this series away. And I think that's been the story so far. All right, so let's start there then. Um, What do you think is one adjustment that they should have made earlier that has not happened so far? Yeah, I so the high screener role between Jokic and Murray, I think, has to be one of, if not the most dangerous uh, place set in all of the NBA. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the options, it's not just that when they run that high screen role, they get Jamal Murray downhill quicker and able to attack the basket uh, because Jokic is a really underrated screener. It's that even when defenses uh, adjust and play a little bit more aggressively on that set, it opens up the middle of the floor for Murray and or Jokic to get there and pass out to the perimeter. Uh, I think Doc Rivers has to be a little bit more aggressive coming into game seven. And I would imagine that the lowest hanging fruit when attacking that set is going to be putting Kawhi on Jokic and PG uh, on Murray so that the Clippers are able to switch out that set a lot easier than they have been so far. uh, It's mostly been Kawhi and Zubak uh, playing that action. And while Zubac has definitely been better than what we've seen with Harrell, Mm -hmm. uh, Jokic has still definitely been able to score over him. Um, I think we saw Doc switch out to Kawhi and PG late in the fourth quarter in game five. Not so much in game six, but going into game seven, I would imagine Doc is going to attack that lineup with Kawhi and PG far more than he has in the series thus far. Right. So that's an interesting, you know, idea with um, sorry, uh, with Kawhi and PG guarding the two main best players. And it's not even just like on that high screen roll. It's just when they run that dribble handoff on the perimeter too. just any sort of two man game involving Jokic and Murray has proven difficult to contain. Um, I do wonder if you are using, you know, Kawhi to guard Jokic and PG to guard Murray, then like, where does that leave Zubac? Like, is he even playable if you're not using him defensively? Uh, Maybe because he's still a really good rim runner and you can run pick and rolls with Zubac that have been hard for Denver to defend. I think uh, we talk a lot about Zubac's role on the defensive end and it's just easier to, you know, 
distinguish what he provides versus what Harold provides just because of his size, right? He is a physically imposing presence in the rim in the way that Montrose Harold just cannot be. Um, but I don't know that we talk enough about Ibiza Zubac on the offensive end where he's a really good rebounder. Uh, he just provides a lot of pressure on the basket, right? And I think Kawhi likes running pick and roll with Zoo a lot more than he does with Harold. Maybe that's a function of how many minutes they play with one another, but that's an action that the, the Clippers really like to go to. And I just hope that like they find the way to use Zubac, even if defensively they aren't using him to defend Jokic and like no one can defend Jokic. Like it's just, he's gotten to the point where I think he's even gone to another level in this series, just because his three point shot has been so consistent. Like I think he shot 31% on threes during the regular season. So even though I don't think that like, that's the kind of guy that you want to drop on because he's so skilled on the perimeter, like that was a more defensible strategy when you could say, Oh, he's only making a third, less than a third of his three pointers. And now he's like what 46, 47% uh, in the series. And it's no longer a tenable proposition. Right. So, uh, but yeah, defensively, I, I have just been so confused by the Clippers because on paper, this is like the best collection of defensive talent in the NBA. You've got, you know, defensive player of the year, two times in Kawhi Leonard. You've got Paul George, who was third place last year for defensive player of the year, multiple time, all defense selection. You've got Patrick Beverly, who I think is slightly overrated, but still a really good defender at the point of attack. And then you got zoo, who's a really good defensive young center. Um, And then they just seem to have no idea how to work together with one another. (laughs) No. And you talk about playing on a string Mm -hmm. and we saw in the Lakers rocket series that that series really turned on the Lakers ability to play on a string. And when the rotations became Mm -hmm. a lot more crisp, something that the Lakers throughout the regular season only did intermittently. And so if you would have ever thought coming into the playoffs that a series was going to uh, change based upon a team's ability to cohesively defend Mm -hmm. and rotate uh, with crisp maneuvers, you would have said that it was the Clippers rather than the Lakers. And it turned out to be the exact opposite because the Clippers rotations, it's not just that they've been bad. It's just that they've been a half step wherever it is that they're going. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have not played on a string to to use the cliche uh, whatsoever. And look, part of that is very fixable. Part of that, it does have to do with effort and communication, which is something that I would imagine with the urgency going into game seven that the Clippers exhibit, but it's not necessarily a given and they have to make that a huge priority. I'm sure Doc will uh, uh, today going into tomorrow, Um, but if they don't plan a rotation, that's really where we're going to see a guy like Gary Harris just continue to light the Clippers up. And that could be an, a death nail for them. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people are going to say that the Clippers just didn't have time to build this chemistry up during the regular season. And yeah, that's that's true. You know, the Kawhi and PG did not play together as much as you would want. This is only year one of them together. Uh, most, much of this roster is new, right? Like you've got the core of Beverly, Lou, and Montrezl Harrell. Uh, but beyond that, like, this is a very different team. And even Zubac, like, didn't really play down the stretch of the postseason last year. He was getting minutes in the teens, you know, at the end of the regular season once they brought him in from the Lakers. Uh, and, like, I think about the Clippers during the regular season and, like, the lineups that they closed with are basically the same lineups they're closing with now. You know, they got practice in close games with these groups. Like, I think about the first game that Kawhi and Paul George played together. It was against Boston. Um which is a difficult offense to try to contain, right? And they're down late in the fourth quarter and that group just comes together and like 
gets it done in the clutch and you have these outstanding defensive sequences where they're rotating and doing exactly what we want them to do now. And they were doing that in their first game together in the regular season. Uh, I just have a hard time believing that this is a chemistry issue, that this is a result of them not having the reps with one another because they're too smart to let these things happen. Like I saw, um, I think it was Mike Prade on Twitter the other day said that uh, the Clippers lead the league in points per game because they keep pointing at each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is your switch. This is your guy that you're supposed to take. And they're not like actually manning up and taking the guys. So on paper, yeah, like Kawhi and PG should be able to defend the Murray-Jokic two-man action better than anybody else. But in practice, like they have more miscommunications than any two all-world caliber defenders should. Right. And it's beyond just, look, there are some defenders for one reason or another that are far better on-ball defenders than they are off-ball, whether it's because they get caught caught ball-watching or they're just not as locked in as they are when they're defending the lead ball handler. And that may be somewhat what is happening with the Clippers, but they've also exhibited times like against Boston where they can rotate and they're all communicating really well. It's weird because they just, they go through these phases where there's just a general malaise on defense and they just don't have that type of intensity. And I do wonder, look, I'm not into the armchair psychology that seems to define the Twitterverse around the NBA and (laughs) what guy is mentally tough and what guy is a real leader and all of that. But I do wonder if this is them not having a vocal leader on defense, um, you know, you would imagine somebody like Pat Beverly, who is very vocal, might have filled that role. Kawhi, we know, is a little bit more, uh, he tends to be a bit more quiet on the court. Um, but I do wonder if maybe that's what they're missing. I, I, I don't know. I find myself kind of reaching for answers on why they seem to go through these phases where this, this happens every once every couple of weeks. Yeah, and I mean honestly, like I don't even think they're losing this series or not losing, but I don't even think they're at a game seven because of their defense because their defense has been no. good enough. Um, yeah. I don't think like I think Denver put up a one hundred and twelve offensive rating in the last game that, or one hundred like fourteen even maybe that that's fine. You know, it's they're a very good offense. They should be able to put up points. Like you know, Dallas was able to put up points on the Clippers, and that was with even more shorthanded personnel than what Denver is dealing with. Although. I still think Will Barton would be a nice addition in this series. It's too bad he's not around. But uh, I don't think they're losing this defensively. I think they're going through these really weird offensive lulls uh, that, for the life of me, I cannot explain. Like, uh, people – I've always thought that the Clippers this season were kind of a front-running team. Like, when they look good, they look really, really good. And we saw that in game one. Um, They came back in game three. That was a really nice win for them. Uh, They just – totally put the clamps on Denver in game four, you know, when they're at their peak, it just seems like the ball is zipping, you know, they're flying around in rotations on defense and everything looks right. And that's why it's so strange to me that they can go up by 19 and then the ball drops, you know? Yes. And I, so I think the two are connected. The Clippers, this series Throughout the regular season, the Clippers only operated in transition about 13% of the time. And they were good in transition, but that's not a team that relies on pace as much as some of the other teams in the league. In the playoffs, the Clippers 
have relied much more on transition basketball. Uh, they're playing at about 3% higher rate uh, uh, with pace than they did compared to the regular season, which isn't a huge amount. But where it's been key has been for Paul George. Uh, Paul George in the regular season, excuse me, only operated uh, in transition about 11% of the time. That's jumped to 23% of all of his possessions uh, uh, in the postseason. And he's scoring at about a, a 0.8 points per possession when he does have the ball uh, playing on the fast break, which is above average versus in the regular season where he was about a, a 0.6 points per possession, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that's actually the difference between a poor transition player and an above average transition player. And we saw especially uh, in the first round him really struggle offensively. And the easiest answer I think that Doc had was just get Paul running. And once he gets downhill, everything else becomes easier. We don't have to worry about our half-court offense that at times can stagnate. Um, and so why I think the defensive end has been so important for the Clippers this series is because when they have gotten out to those leads, it's when they're causing turnovers, which Jokic has had a He will cough the ball up, yes. <laughs> he, he has been coughing the ball up, and the Clippers have really relied on that uh, as their offensive lifeblood because when they get into their half-court sets, the – offense just has absolutely stagnated. And I think there's several reasons for that. Uh, I, I think the most obvious that people have been talking about has been the play of Montreal's Harrell uh, and Lou Williams. They've just not looked anything like what they have uh, in the regular season. And mm -hmm. obviously some of that is going to be uh, injuries concerns when we're talking about Harrell, but also Lou Williams, look, every year we have the same conversation about Lou not being as effective in the postseason as he is in the regular season. And some of that makes sense. Calls are not going to come as easily. And as somebody who really feasts on free throw attempts, that makes sense. But in game five and six, Denver in their half court sets against the Clippers offense was beginning to help off of Williams uh, in trapping Kawhi and PG. And, Lou just hasn't been able to make them pay in numbers that are significant enough to force defense to change course. And that's going to have to change. Uh, they can get away with it in game seven. Look, I, I don't know about you, but I personally would be shocked if the Clippers lost game seven. Yeah, I would uh, be too. Uh, which I'm, I, I'm sure that we'll talk about in a moment. But going forward, Lou has to be better. More than Harrell, uh, Lou has to up that scoring percentage, uh, and particularly his three-point percentage, far higher for than it's been if the Clippers are ultimately going to be successful. Yeah, I thought we might be hitting a turning point um, in terms of Lou Williams because, like you mentioned, I think he had hit two three-pointers in the entire series coming into game six. And then he hits that one at the end of the first half, you know, puts the Clippers up either with 60-47 or 63-47. I can't remember if he or Kawhi were first um, on those back-to-back -back threes. But like that sort of felt like an icebreaker, right? Like, oh, like Lou has, the playmaking has been going okay. He's been given a good effort on the defensive end. It's just the jump shot has not come to Orlando. And him hitting a three felt like a sign of, you know, things to come. And then, nope, <laughs> that was just, that was just one three-pointer that Lou Williams happened to hit that didn't come back. Uh, but yeah, the the offensive thing is is just so puzzling to me because, I look at this roster and I feel like Lou should be able to create his own offense. Montrezl Harrell should be able to 
create some of his own offense. And Marcus Morris should be able to generate some better looks. I mean, even Patrick Beverly, I feel like, is a good spot-up shooter. He attacks the basket. Nobody was getting anything done in that second half of game six. Four players scored altogether. And I think Lou Williams and Jamichael Green only combined for eight points. So it was Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and then eight points of 11 other Clippers. Uh, And maybe that leads into the next adjustment you were talking about, like another thing that you think the Clippers should be looking to do in game seven. Yes, I, so I would imagine that the Clippers are going to go small. Um, we saw this a little bit in game six. Um, they just need better spacing. Even, look, one of the reasons why I think the Clippers are going to win game seven is because they have the best one-on-one player in the entire NBA in Kawhi Leonard. All respect to James Harden, uh, who does it in much greater volume than Kawhi, but Per capita, there is no greater isolation player in the league than Kawhi Leonard. And if you need him to win a single game, I don't know if there's anybody else that you would rather have in the league than Kawhi. Uh, And so I think that's what we'll end up seeing, a pretty heavy dosage of uh, coming up tomorrow. But I do think that the Clippers going small and taking out Zubox and putting in Jamichael uh, just allows them a little bit more spacing. And it's not like they are going to need to completely solve their three-point woes in one game, mm-hmm. but just creating a little bit more driving lanes, even if it is for Lou, is going to open them up so much more than what we've seen so far. Yeah, I just, I feel like we talked about this a lot about the Clippers during the regular season where they don't have a natural point guard. And I think that was overblown. But you do see these stretches where they just become a little passiverse. And all of these guys are such excellent isolation players. Like you said, Kawhi Leonard, arguably the best isolation player in the NBA. Paul George, really good isolation scorer. Lou Williams, that's his bread and butter. Marcus Morris, that's what he was doing on the Knicks, you know, putting up 20 plus a night before the Clippers brought him in at the trade deadline. They all feel comfortable doing that. And I think they get bogged down in that, you know, isolation mindset a little too often. And most of the time it's okay because they can still score at a reasonable rate. It's just when it's not going well, they don't have a way to get themselves out of that. You know, Uh, I guess that's what Reggie Jackson was brought in for, you know, to be a point guard. Um, But even he is a scorer at heart. I think Um, he just happens to play point guard because he's like six foot change. Uh, I don't know who you bring in when you want to juice up the offense. I, I guess it's Lou Williams because he's the one that has the most playmaking instinct but then you run into, you know, a whole bag of a can of worms on the other end, right? Where they're, they're hunting Lou Williams. The Daggets are hunting Lou Williams on all of those matchups. <laughs> yeah, no, and I would imagine, so a lot of the conversation over the last week has focused on Harrell mm-hmm. and just how not Harold he has looked like. And his numbers, his on-off numbers have been just really terrible. Yeah. And in fact, Doc, uh, following his post-game presser in game six, kind of, when we when he was pushed on why Harold was still getting such minutes because his on off numbers I think were negative nineteen at at one point and and Doc said well I don't think Zubak looked much better either uh, even though the numbers were a little bit kinder to Avika than they were yeah. to uh, Harold um, I do think those rotations are going to change at least tomorrow in tomorrow night's game. Uh, when the Clippers go to their bench-heavy lineups, usually in the, the second quarter, the Nuggets have just been able to swarm Lou and have generally that help has come off of Harrell. And I think Mark Jackson mentioned it during the game. 
if those lineups are going to continue, Harold has to attack. And he has to score at a reasonable enough rate that they're going to take some pressure off of Lou, which is ironic because then when Lou is in with the closing lineup with uh, Kawhi and PG, the help is coming off of Lou. Uh, and, and the same thing goes for him. He has to score at a high enough rate in order to make Denver's defense either pay and or change. And if they don't, that's going to put a heavier load on Kawhi and PG to carry, which Kawhi, as I mentioned, I think can do that, especially in a one-game scenario. Paul George, however, uh, in the isolation in the regular season, this is another change that we've seen. He operated out of the isolation about 29% of the time. In the playoffs, he's he's only operating about 17% of the time. And he's scoring at a below average rate uh, during that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's everything is is coming home to roost for the Clippers in in terms of some of their bad habits, in terms of uh, some of the inefficiencies, all at the same time. And I think that's part of the reason why we are in a game seven, because everything that has gone wrong for the Clippers is going wrong at the exact same time. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's only been six games against the Nuggets, right? Like, this is a small sample. I, I watched, you know, the third quarter and fourth quarter again, and I, I still think a lot of those Kawhi and PG shots are good looks. Like, they're nice mid-range jumpers that I would expect to go in more often than not, and sometimes they don't. And that's just – that just happens, right, in a short playoff series. There's just no getting around that. Uh, I'm a little surprised by those PG isolation numbers. I guess uh, he was pretty bad against Dallas, and that was a lot of isolation, and that might be uh, contributing to that. Wow. Right. Which is also why, and listen, good for him and for Doc in recognizing that something wasn't working and not just sticking to it because that's what they've done all year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, they've played with pace far more than they have at any point during this last year. And that seems to have been effective. PG has not been bad uh, this series by any stretch. Uh, He obviously is probably going to need to contribute a little bit more but he seems to be on the rebound from the low point that was the Dallas Mavericks series. Yeah, he's been scoring at a really, really good rate during this series. Um, I I think, like, you can't really find a better number two in the league than Paul George, except, you know, maybe Anthony Davis, I guess. But <laughs> um, I think he's been exactly what the Clippers needed from him in terms of a scoring perspective. Uh, it's just, again, I keep coming back to, like, why him and Kawhi Leonard like aren't more stifling defensively. And I, I mean, I feel like we touched on that plenty. So I don't want to like, you know, completely badger that again. Um, I just want to say one thing on Montrose Harrell. Uh, it's so strange to me that this man won sixth man of the year and is like the third guy off the bench for the Clippers now. Uh, yes. This has to be just such a crummy week for him to get that award. And then everybody is saying how he's unplayable um, it's it sucks. And I really thought that he would be more successful against Mason Plumley. I think that's a matchup that historically he has done well with because Mason's a bit flimsier than you might think for somebody who's that tall. Like Trez can kind of bang his way through him. Um, but, you know, Mike Malone is just not playing Plumley that much. <laughs> like he played no. Plumley and Jokic together in a previous game because he wanted to keep Jokic on um, Harold defensively. And I don't think Trez is taking advantage of his speed enough in that matchup. He's kind of just sort of like backing Jokic down, which that's the one thing Jokic does really well is provide a physical presence to deter you from posting up on the rim. But uh, let's let's look ahead to game seven. Uh, I assume no starting lineup changes are going to be made because that would be just ridiculous. Uh, what do you think uh, 
Like, who do you think Doc is going to have a quick hook for, I should say, looking ahead to game seven? I think the obvious answer is going to be Harrell. Okay. Uh, and to a lesser degree, Zubac. Okay. Um, I do not imagine that we are going to see a complete bench unit on sharing the floor mm-hmm. at, at the same time. I would imagine. We haven't really, like. Um, no, no, we haven't. And, and, and which is ironic because going into the postseason, the Clippers one of their biggest assets was their depth and the fact that they could play an entire bench unit at the same time. And the numbers weren't terrible for them when they did so. Uh, uh, Doc has definitely changed uh, that approach in the Maverick series. I would imagine in game seven, we won't see that whatsoever. Uh, and I, it's going to be interesting to see what his closing lineup, if it continues to be uh, uh Lou Williams, um, and if he ends up going completely small with Marcus Morris at center. I, I think that's a very real possibility. Uh, we saw it a little bit in game six with some middling results, mm-hmm. but if the Clippers are going to be committed to switching everything, which is tends to be their calling card on defense, right. that seems to be the easiest way for them to continue to do so. Right. And uh, I feel like most people have been clamoring for Jamichael Green to take those Montrezl Harrell minutes just because, yes. you know, he's a floor spacer. He is a good rebounder. You know, he provides all the little things that you want from the center position, right? While just being a little bit bigger than Montrezl Harrell, which is a definite asset. Uh, I don't think we've talked enough about the Marcus Morris at five lineups because those are really good against Dallas. Yes. And Marcus Morris is getting his lunch handed to him by Paul Millsap. <laughs> <laughs> like Paul Millsap looked like he was dead in the water in that Utah series. This is a much better series for him because the Clippers are bigger and a little bit slower than the Utah players. Um, so it gives him like something to do on the defensive end. It also gives him a reasonable place to attack on offense. I had forgotten that Paul Millsap was a four-time All-Star. I feel like I generally disregard Eastern Conference All-Star accomplishments. Was it that many? <laughs> four-time All-Star Paul Millsap. Wow. And, and he I, I has love been much Paul better. Millsap. He's been much better than Marcus Morris and that's not a matchup that I thought the Clippers were going to lose, honestly, which probably was overrating Morris a little bit because, again, four-time All-Star Paul Millsap. But they're losing it sizably. Like, Millsap is having an effect on the game that I just – I often don't feel that Marcus Morris is on the court. You know, he exists to take spot-up shots, and when those aren't going in, you kind of don't appreciate his presence. Yes. No, absolutely. And – you know, here's the thing about Paul Millsap as well, is, is that he isn't as easy to attack in the switch as I think a lot of people initially expect him to be. And the Denver's post-defense has been absolutely fantastic so far through this series. They definitely have turned on their defensive intensity once they get down. Yeah. And if you're Mike Malone, you may, you know, you don't want to get into a 17-point hole before mm-hmm. you start playing aggressive D. And, and that's going to be interesting to see uh, if the – Nuggets don't take as long to really get into the game as they have the past two. Just a but, quick note on that. Um, yes. Jeff Van Gundy actually said during game six, he's like, I don't even want to start, you know, the next game. Like, just let's just play it at halftime and start with the Nuggets 15 points down. And somebody brought that up to Nikola Jokic during the post game. And he was like, I mean, it's not the worst idea. <laughs> but and here's the ironic part, too. It's not just when the Nuggets have started to come back from those early deficits, it's not just that shots are going in that weren't in the first half they there is a demonstrative change in their approach on the defensive end from a schematic standpoint i mean they are blitzing 
Mm -hmm. uh, the pick and roll much more. The rotations are flying all over the place. Uh, schematically, they are making adjustments that have been really good. And I don't know if it's a situation where if you're Michael Malone, you don't know if guys can put up that effort for 48 minutes. So you're waiting to the second half to really implement that. But I would have to imagine in game seven, you can't wait. <laughs> You can't wait. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to reach down deep into yourself, Niccolo, and find that energy. Maybe pass off the Clark bar uh, and, you know, really put in for a full 48. But just back to the, the Clippers offense, just very quickly. One thing that I do want to see more of, because when they've run this set, throughout the series it tends to be pretty effective and is an easy way to get away from the stagnating isolation uh, offense that we've seen from the Clippers thus far is the slip screen okay uh, yeah where basically for for those of you who are not familiar with it it's the ball handler is approaching the screener as if it's going to be a traditional screen and roll but right before the ball handler gets to where the screener is the screener jets off in the opposite direction and the defender is left kind of in no man's land. Does he continue to attack the ball handler and try to trap him? Does he then chase after the screener who's jetted off in the opposite direction, usually above the perimeter? Mm -hmm. And that's usually been pretty effective in gaining space for the Clippers shooters. Uh, if Even if they don't take the three-point shot, it opens up a driving lane for them. And the Clippers offense too often is standing in place. And that's a pretty easy way for them to kind of break that malaise. And I really wonder if Doc is going to use that. We saw it a little bit in game six uh, and, and the numbers on it for Synergy Sports were above average. Mm -hmm. I, I, would, I would hope that the Clippers run a little bit more of that action. Yeah, I mean, just in general, it feels like they haven't been running enough pick and roll with, uh, with Harrell in particular. Uh, I, I don't know why. <laughs> it seems like the most effective way of using him, uh, just getting him on the move, you know. But yeah, I, I like that concept because, you know, either you get, maybe you get a big flashing into the middle and like either they can finish if the help is late or they pass out of the short roll, which Zubac is getting much better at. Harrell is very good at. And then you're just, you know, pinging the ball around the perimeter where either you get an open shot or like you said, it opens up a driving lane. All good things that happen when you get the defense into rotation and credit to Denver, like you said, they have been much more active, especially in the second halves. Like Torrey Craig is a really good defender. Gary Harris has been tremendous in this series. Jeremy Grant, how you can guys, defend don't they? Kawhi Leonard for six games and just not have like bruises all over yourself. Uh, credit to Grant, but I do think that the Clippers have better offensive personnel than the Nuggets have defensive personnel. And we just haven't seen that borne out yet. Um, I think if you exclude like the first half of game one the nuggets are actually outscoring the clippers in this series which wow <laughs> yeah and listen the denver nuggets depth is i is something that i don't think gets enough credit yeah uh, i mean Jokic and murray rightfully so uh, uh get a ton of attention and, and porter for everything that he does from the anti-vaxxer <laughs> to hitting the the clutch three uh, uh, late in game five, but Jeremy Grant is one of my favorite players to watch in the entire NBA. I was a, I've been a huge fan of him throughout his career, and he's just been really, really great, as has Torrey Craig. Um, yeah, Denver Nuggets just have a bunch of guys that you'd want to be in a foxhole with, but so do the Clippers, and yes. <laughs> I, 
there is no reason why the Clippers should lose game seven. Just to, to put it, they are the better team. Mm-hmm. They have the best player on the court. Uh, I love Mike Malone, but I do think Doc has proven to be as good, if not a, a better coach uh, than he has, especially in making adjustments in the playoffs in years past. And I, I fully expect the Clippers to win in game seven. But you also, I mean, what if Murray know. goes off for 50 points? And <laughs> sometimes that's the way the ball rolls. Right. Uh, I just want to close with one little thing. Um, I know you said you don't like playing armchair psychologist, but there is a bit of Clippers paranoia, let's say, rolling in at the end of this series. Because as we know, the Clippers have not ever advanced to the conference finals in their franchise's history. The last time they had a chance was in 2015 when they were up 3-1 against the Rockets and a similar situation played out to this one. Um, Now, none of the players on this Clippers team were on that team. Doc Rivers was still the coach. Uh, He is the only coach in NBA history to have blown multiple 3-1 leads, which not not a great look on your postseason resume. Like, it's not something I'd want to add to mine. But um, there has been some, you know, agitation, let's say, among the fan base about whether this is just like a manifestation of the Clippers curse coming through again. Uh, Do you feel like... The Clippers are, I don't know, weighed down by that at all? Or is that just something that, like, exists in the fandom and not on the players at all? I think that is something that exists in the fandom. But I do think, look, if these were normal times and there was, we were playing at Staples Center mm-hmm. and the fandom was able to attend these games, I do think surrounded by 18,000 people who are collectively going crap here we go again right definitely has a permutation in the air if you will um i do wonder if because they are in orlando closed off from everyone if that kind of allows the pressure to recede a little bit um look there's always pressure going into game seven and i also don't buy this whole well all of the pressure is on the Clippers and the Nuggets are just free and careless. I'm sorry, but if you're going into game seven, playing in game seven and are not nervous and feeling pressure, I don't totally know if you are aware Alive? of this situation. <laughs> yes. I, I just, I've never bought that. Everyone's going to have butterflies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I seriously doubt Kawhi Leonard is thinking, oh my God, here we go again. I have the collective history of the Buffalo Braves and the San Diego <laughs> Clippers and Bill Walton's, you know. I mean, he grew up watching those teams. Like, it's not like it's not a part of his history. It's true. Although I just, I don't know, maybe it's Kawhi himself that I, I, I find it difficult to imagine him sitting alone in his hotel room, you know, about pondering, the, pondering the Clippers' <laughs> tortured history. I mean, although maybe, maybe he can't just in a darkened room, no TV on, just staring off into the distance, thinking about you know, what would have happened if Bill Walton's foot hadn't crapped out for the, the San Diego Clippers? That, yeah. that may actually be exactly what Kawhi Leonard is doing right now. <laughs> I, I So I have a, a quick question for you. Sure. Pondering the worst case scenario. Okay. The Clippers lose game seven, which by the way, I think we were both in agreement is we don't think is going to happen. Right. If I had to make a prediction, I would say the Clippers win. Although I am surprised that they are favored by seven and a half. That feels high. That feels high as well, mm-hmm. I, but I do think that the Clippers will win. But pondering the worst-case scenario, let's say that they do lose. Does Doc leave? Does, or does Doc 
Is Doc ousted? Okay, so I have been having this conversation with my brother a lot, uh, especially in the Dallas series when I didn't think, when I thought Doc was getting outcoached by Rick Carlisle. Um, Ty Lue's name is mentioned with every open head coaching job. I've been saying maybe he's waiting for this job. Maybe yes. he's waiting for Doc to leave and this bench open. I cannot see the Clippers firing Doc Rivers because just, I, I think you and I have talked about this offline about just how much he means to the organization as a, from a personal perspective, right? How he carried them through the Donald Sterling situation. What a wonderful public voice he is for the issues that face current NBA players. The press conference that he had um, uh, prior, prior to the, the strike that the NBA players led, you know, during the playoff games was remarkable. It was so emotionally affecting. I mean, it resonated through not just the athletic community, but people all around the country. And you just- I got teary-eyed you can't, watching it. You can't separate the man that Doc Rivers is, you know, from his coaching performance. I just, I cannot see the Clippers saying, you are not the right guy to lead our men, you know? Um, yes. But maybe he decides to leave. I, I This is a two-year timeline for the Clippers, right? They got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. They will be free agents next summer. They had the opportunity, I should say, to be free agents, you know, after the 2020-21 season. Uh, most people expect them to stay around because they both were so vocal about wanting to play at home. I don't think you can count on anything in the NBA, though. I don't think you can expect any guarantees. They have two years to get this done. Uh, if they don't get it done this year, they don't even get to the conference finals. That demands a certain level of accountability. And I would not be surprised if Doc Rivers felt the need to fall on his sword. That's fair. I in that scenario, if the Clippers were to lose tomorrow, I don't think Rivers would be let go. I think it would be a situation where unless he decided to resign because he felt that the team needed a different voice, right. that would be one thing. But I do agree with you that I have a difficult time imagining Steve Ballmer uh, firing Doc Rivers, especially because it's an interesting situation with Doc because he is probably the only coach in the NBA that is the defining figure in his franchise's history. I mean, I mean, the Kawhi certainly could end up being that for the Clippers should he stay mm -hmm. in LA for the long term. But you look at the, the, the Clippers history, I mean, Alton Brand is certainly up there, but I just feel like what Doc Rivers has meant to the community and to the athletic world as a whole, and even following the Donald Sterling affair, where he really took control of the organization and was being called down uh, uh, to the headquarters to talk the ticket sellers the from walking right? yeah. out, uh, from protesting. He is probably the defining figure in all of Clippers history and is the face of a franchise that is really unique for any front office and our coach uh, to be so. Um, that may change, as I said, going forward, sure, if yeah. Kawhi and, and PG stay long-term. But it's difficult to find a more powerful, resonant figure in Clippers history than Doc Rivers. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm so sure I, you I do could, agree with you. I, I, I think... I was just going to say, I'm sure you could make that yeah. argument for Donald Sterling like, in the opposite direction. But like in terms of a positive unifying force, like it's definitely that's, Rivers in a way that I don't think true. exists in any other franchise. Like I was just sort of mentally oh. running through the standings while you were saying that. And yeah, the, it's not a thing anywhere else. Like, I mean, maybe like Red Auerbach, maybe. Right, maybe um, Red Auerbach had for a while Jerry West maybe with the Lakers. But, but even then I'd probably put Jerry Buss ahead of Jerry West in terms exactly. of their impact on that team, yeah. Yes, uh, I, I think I think Doc is the defining 
clipper figure in our life. And you're right in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. God help us with Donald Sterling, but there are also practically, I don't think that there is a better, unless Greg Popovich decides that he wants to move on from San Antonio. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there is a better head coaching option out there than Doc Rivers. You look at that free agent market for coaches and Doc Rivers would immediately jump to the top of the list. All respect to Mike D'Antoni and Tyron Lue, who I think are very good coaches as well. Yeah, I think uh, I would like to see what Tyron Lue could do with this team as the head coach, just because uh, the one defining characteristic I got from his tenure in Cleveland was that he hunts matchups and he exploits them. And if he finds something that works, he does it over and over again. And there is very little emotional concerns that come into play. Like he benched Kevin Love during the NBA finals to play Richard Jefferson, like a 37 year old Richard Jefferson. And I do not think Doc Rivers has the gall to like bench Montrez Harrell if it came to it. Um, you know, we, I, it's not like apples to apples situations, obviously, right. uh, but I mean, I'm not if, sure. If, if that... Harrell does not have a quick hook to, in tomorrow night's game, mm-hmm. that is a demerit yeah. for Doc. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that there is a better coach for this Clippers team, uh, but when we, think about Doc Rivers, like it's always been said that he knows how to bring people together. And like, that was his calling card, you know, in Boston, right? Like Ubuntu, right? And the big three, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett immediately coalesced into one really perfect team. That was, that was an excellent, excellent team. And for some reason, this Clippers team has never felt like it has the level of chemistry that you would expect of a title contender, especially like when you think this is a Doc Rivers specialty. Like, this is what he does. He brings guys together. Last year's team, you know, just a wonderful personality that those Clippers had has been completely absent this year. And if he can't do that, then maybe he is not the right fit to lead this team going forward. Maybe. I don't know. I'm so sad that we have to even talk about this. <laughs> maybe the Clippers uh, win no. tomorrow and then they look really good against the Lakers and we're just, uh, you know, tattling this up to bad takes that we just said because we had microphones in front of our faces <laughs> you know there's all there's never a bad reason to have a hot take yeah <laughs> can, I, can i before i let you go can i just share my hot take with you from this coronavirus excursion that we've been on the last six months sure because i know you will appreciate this as a f- former heavy reader of shakespeare my hot take is that Shakespeare is the exact opposite of Stephen King, where Stephen King is just a plot machine whose character development and prose is, you know, not very good. Shakespeare, not very good at plots, but his prose and character development, phenomenal. That's, that's my hottest take that I've gotten from this past summer. So you're welcome. Well, I don't know that we can have a better note to end on. So... Amen. This this has been the Clips Nation podcast. Thank you so much, David, for coming on to talk Game 7, which we both do believe that the Clippers will win, and hopefully that comes to pass. So make sure you are subscribed to this show on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll catch you later. Bye.